Now hear God's holy word from Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Skipping down to verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, I pray that as we study these things today, your spirit would grant us clearness of thought and that you would implant in our hearts this word that you have given to us, strengthen us by it. May we receive it and respond correctly. Help me to be an articulate messenger of this word. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, and deliver us from all distraction, deliver us from all error, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. People of God, do you remember how you viewed older people when you were very young? Do you remember how your perspective of your parents and of your grandparents changed as you got older, but when you were very young, they all seemed impossibly old, just so old, having their 30th and 40th birthdays, how unbelievably old they were, grown-ups, how could anybody be so old and, and so boring? How could they be so fascinated with the news, reading the newspaper, watching the news on television, listening to the news on the radio? They couldn't get enough of the news or the weather. Oh my goodness, the weather, all the time with the weather. No wonder they got tired so quickly. They were bored to death of the news. I mean, if they watched something good, they might, might uh, stay awake. They never got enough sleep, obviously probably because they were working so terribly hard for you to give you all these things you don't deserve and you never appreciate anything and you could never fully appreciate the very difficult life they had led to bring you all these things that, that you enjoy. And so you must not make them mad. You must do what they say and uh, it, you'll, you'll keep them happy if you, if you know what's best for you. That's, that's the perspective that we have on old people when we're very young or our parents. And you thought as a child, you thought, you know, when I'm an adult, things are going to be so much different. I'm going to be different. I'm going to stay up as late as I want. I'm going to eat ice cream for breakfast and lunch. I'm going to eat Lucky Charms for supper. And uh, my kids will love me because I'm going to play catch with them every single night. I'm going to stay outside playing catch until it's way too late and way too dark to be playing catch. And I'm going to get them whatever they want for Christmas. You know, I just that's what I'm going to do when I'm a grown up. And there's never going to be any news on in my house. It's going to be cartoons, cartoons all the time. And vegetables will be strictly optional. I can't wait until I'm the boss. I can't wait until I'm in charge. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And then one day we turn 40 and we find ourselves falling asleep in front of the news. And we catch ourselves saying the very same things our parents used to say. Don't, don't make that face. It'll freeze that way, which makes no sense. And I don't understand why we say that, but we say that. Whenever we look up to authorities from, um, from a position of, of either being a child or being an employee, or whenever we look up to bosses 
or parents or civil magistrates. We almost always look up to them believing that we could do a better job if we were in the same position. If I was the boss, if I was managing this company, I would never do that. Things would run so much more smoothly if I were in charge. We have these presuppositions, these expectations of our own leadership skills, of our own management skills. And then when we find ourselves in positions of leadership, the whole world changes. We have a different perspective. We see why our parents were so tired. We, we see why our bosses are the way that they are. From a limited vantage point, everything looks so black and white. From the outside, everything looks so clear. And the answers are so obvious. But when we become adults, we see that there's this whole world of stresses and factors and, and considerations that never even crossed our minds when we were younger. Today, I want to continue our two-part study on the qualifications and duties of leaders in the church. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have an election. Well, next week, that's right. Next week, we're going to have an election for a new elder. <clears throat> and at these transition points in the life of our congregation, it's often good to stop and reassess, to go back over what we believe about leadership in the church so that we all share the same biblically informed standards, that we don't have worldly expectations of those that we're calling to fill these positions, and they don't have the wrong idea about their own position, that we all have these biblically rounded out expectations for each other, that we become no more like children uh, with immature presuppositions, that we're not uninformed. We don't want to be naive about the way things work in the church. Last week, we looked at Titus 1, where Paul lists the qualifications of church elders. Now, church elders in Titus 1 are also called overseers. It's translated in some of your Bibles as bishops. Uh, or they're also known in the Bible as shepherds. This is an office that God has put in the church, uh, an office uh, of those who tend to God's flock and family. God has also given us the office of deacons. Deacons take care of the physical needs of the body of Christ. Elders take care of the spiritual needs. That's a painting with a very broad brush, um, but, but I think I've defined it enough to, at least that's a good category to, to think of. Um, the, and so Paul directed Titus to appoint elders in all of the churches throughout the island of Crete. And we saw there that the churches were to have elders, plural. It's more than one. God is pleased when there is a plurality of leaders in the church. Whenever men were sent out on these missionary journeys, they were sent two by two so that there would be companionship and encouragement and support as they went out. Jesus called 12 apostles not just one apostle, he called, he called 12. When they set up deacons in the church in, in Acts, they picked seven of them. And we've been studying the book of Revelation where you look into God's throne room and you see there are 24 elders assembled before the throne of God. God is pleased when there are many who shoulder the work of counsel and leadership and vision casting and equipping for ministry and edifying the church and all these, all these jobs that there are many. So in the church, we don't invest all kinds of authority in one man. We don't just have one dictator or one big boss man, but we have several good men who serve together 
who shore up each other's weaknesses, who challenge each other to faithfulness. We draw on the collective wisdom of the group. And, and these men ordinarily are called, they're set apart, they're chosen by the congregation. You appoint who you want to serve and to uh, fill these offices. You pick, you vote on them, you set them aside. So, so we don't have a dictator in the body of Christ. We have a king who's Jesus. Under King Jesus, we have many shepherds, we have many elders. So we don't have a dictator, and we also don't have a pure democracy. We have representative government in the church. We elect elders who then, who then serve us, uh, who, who lead and, and govern. Uh, there are some scholars who've written uh, that the, the form of government that we have in the United States was based in part in Presbyterian church government. Uh, that uh, in, in the United States, we elect people who go and serve us, who represent us, and we trust them to do a good job. They don't always do a good job, but, but we trust them to do that. We vote on them and we tell them, we don't vote on everything as American citizens. We have representatives who vote on things. We ask them, we can petition them, we can ask them to consider things, we can ask them to look at things differently, um, and we can have influence there. But so it is in the church. We have representative government in the church. And so Paul tells Titus in, in Titus 1, appoint elders in all the churches. And then last week we read all the characteristics of a faithful elder, all the attributes of a faithful elder. Today, I want to hear what the scriptures have to say in various places about the duties of elders to the church and the duties of the church to elders. We have mutual responsibilities, and I pray that those responsibilities are based in mutual affection, a mutual desire to serve the Lord Jesus and for God to be pleased with our church life together. Now, I hope that as we start to study these things that you didn't hear the word church government and you flipped a switch and he said, you know, wake me up when we get to communion. You know, I'll, I'm just going to check out and think about whatever else for the next 30 minutes. I hope you don't do that. I hope that you know that in studying this, um, this is not just nuts and bolts, technical jargon uh, that's only good for about three people in the church. But I, I want us to all come away with a strengthened sense of what leadership is supposed to be in the church, that we have good order in the church because when we establish good order in the church, you elevate leadership in the home and in the society. Judgment begins in the house of God. We get things sorted out in the church. We figure out how to govern in the church, and that has a spillover effect that has a, a, uh, a, an influencing and a leavening effect in the society and in the home. So every one of you is called to be a leader. Every one of you, man or woman, young or old, you are called to be a leader. If you're not yet in a position of, of leadership, one day you will be called to lead teach, administrate, you will be called to manage somebody. It may be in a home, it may be in a classroom, it may be in a, a community uh, organization, it may be in a ministry, it may be something. We are all called to lead somewhere. We are also all called to obey somebody. Every one of us submits to someone. Every one of us is called to lead in some other capacity. We all have these opportunities and roles of submission and leadership. So, 
by studying the duties of church leaders in particular, I, I want us all to see in a broader sense, these are the duties of every Christian leader. And as we submit to each other in love and, 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 and work on uh, the, the sharpening and the improving of our life together in this congregation, that Faithful leaders will be strengthened in their work and we will benefit. We will be blessed all together. And that's the, that's the hope and that's the goal to the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the furtherance of the gospel. That's what, that's what we're, we're after is to preach the gospel faithfully and in a consistent way. So I'm just going to look at three different places to find the uh, responsibilities of elders to the church. I want to look briefly at Ephesians 4, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. We'll just draw out a few things from there, and then we'll head back to Hebrews 13 to hear what our duties are to the shepherds. What are our duties to the elders? So let's hear from Ephesians 4, what the Apostle Paul writes. This is very familiar to you, but hear once again uh, how he charges and, and how he sets up the responsibility of the shepherds, of the elders, of the pastors. He Jesus himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and cunning and craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's a mouthful. That's also one sentence. That's, that's a whole sentence in, in Ephesians. Paul is known for not having a, a period on his keyboard. He can't find the period and he just, he keeps going wonderfully. He adds more and more subordinate clauses uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the statement. But um, let me extract some directives from there. <clears throat> What did he just say? He said, Jesus gave his church shepherds one for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. That's why he gave the church shepherds for the equipping of the saints for their work of ministry. The duty of the pastor, the elder, the shepherd is not to do the work of the ministry by himself. We don't have a holy priestly class of people who are to be super Christians or professional Christians while the rest of us just to get to do whatever and, and not engage in the ministry of the gospel. The duty of the shepherd, according to Ephesians 4.11, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What is the work of the ministry? The work of the ministry is discipleship, meaning I teach you what God says. I teach you what God wants. I teach you God's wisdom and his law and his order for life, discipleship. The work of ministry is mercy, acts of mercy that we uh, provide for the widow and the orphan and the stranger and the least of these that we serve and we wash somebody's feet. That's, that's mercy ministry. Uh, the work of ministry is evangelism, that we preach the gospel, that we tell a lost and dying world that there is a savior who can deliver them from the slavery and the bondage of darkness and ignorance and sin. That's, that's the work of ministry, evangelism. 
and fellowship, creating a culture of, of, of festivity and joy that, that draws people to the Savior in an attractive way so that everyone enters his rest and they know what Sabbath is. And of course, all of this flows through worship. And worship is the peak out of which all of these things flow. So what is the work of ministry? The work of ministry is discipleship, acts of mercy, evangelism, fellowship, and worship. And the job of the shepherd is a is to equip you to do those things. We do it primarily by teaching. That's primarily what we do, but we also provide examples and opportunities and environments and, op and, and encouragements for you to do these things, for you to take hold and for you to run with these things. And by the way, you are. It's, it's hardly a day goes by that I don't get an email or a text or a phone call from somebody saying, you know what, I need you to pray for my coworker because I'm sharing the gospel with them and uh, they don't know the Lord. I'm really worried and, and I, I just want to say the right thing. Do you have any, any advice or any counsel or anything? Or, or you'll say, oh, there's somebody who, you know, needs help, but there's somebody who needs a meal or there's somebody who needs, uh, you know, some physical need that we need to meet. There is, there is almost nearly, and I'm not exaggerating, every day someone in this congregation is sharing with me the work of ministry that you are doing and the opportunities that you have in your spheres of influence to minister in the name of Jesus to people around you. And so the job of shepherds is not, I can't live in your neighborhood. I can't live with all your networks and know all your people. You do. My job is to, is to equip you. And the job of the elders is to equip you to do that, to do the work of the ministry. And we do that through the institution of the church itself, through the life of the body. The life of the body provides a number of arenas for you to connect with people, for you to hear of needs and to meet them, to grow connections and friendships, for the older to teach the younger, for the more experienced to teach the less experienced. We have many different kinds of gatherings where you can invite unbelieving friends as, as part of your work of preaching the gospel to them. You can say, hey, if you want to know what real life is like, if you want to know what it's like to be a human, let me show you something. Let me show you how these people throw a party. Let me show you how these people get down and have fun. And, and you show them that this is what it's like when you're part of the family of faith. This is real life. And shepherds create these environments and create these opportunities. They equip you by teaching on the necessity of these things, the importance of them, and then creating a culture by which all of these things are supported and in which all of these things flourish. And by, by, in order to keep that going, it requires your presence, your support, and your participation. The equipping is going on so that you can do the work of ministry and the body is edified. That's the second thing Paul says in Ephesians 4. You equip the body for the work of ministry. You edify the body. God has given his church shepherds to build up the body. It's the duty of elders to strengthen, to glorify the body of Christ, to make her formidable. As churches grow and are built up, they begin to develop a center of gravity. When the church is weak, it's so difficult to have 
cohesion. It's, it's so difficult to pull people in, to help them stick, to get them plugged in. It's so easy for people to just spin off and to, and to go different directions. But when she's established, she starts to have this weight, this firm foundation, this mass, this attractional quality. And it's the job of elders to lead in such a way that we edify her, that we build her up as an institution. We give her shape and form and function and presence in the community. That we aren't just this uh, raggedy bunch of kooks, you know, who just have these extreme views and we're kind of weird and kooky. I mean, we're, we are the church of Jesus Christ. We have authority. We have, we have gravity. We have presence in the world. That's what it means to be edified, to, to, to have, have walls and a foundation and to be able to say to the world, if you want to know what reality is, if you want to know what real life looks like, if you want to know what the future is going to be like, the future is going to be humanity gathered around the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, hearing his word and rejoicing in his good blessings. This is real life. And that's what the, the elders are called to do is to get, get the church to, to, to that point, to edify her. And then this, this establishment, this firm foundation prevents us from being tossed around by every wind of doctrine. We mature, and that's the third thing that Paul gives us in Ephesians 4, is that we speak the truth in love. It's the elder's duty to speak the truth, yes, 100%, speak the truth in love, also in love. We can't hesitate to speak the truth. We must speak the truth when it needs to be said, as hard as it is, as difficult as it often is to speak the truth. We must speak it, but speak it in love. I don't want any of you to ever, ever, ever doubt my deep, deep affection for you. Do you know, people of God, that I love you? I mean, I hope you know that. I love, love, I like being around you. I love being with you. I love sharing life with you. Uh, I have a great deep appreciation for each one of you. I, I pray for you. I go through the church uh, directory and I pray for you by name and I pray for your children that they'll be delivered from sickness and temptation and from disaster. I, I, I pray for you and I thank God for you and I want you to know that I love you so that when I have to speak the truth to you, you know where it's coming from. As you know, it's coming out of my love and my affection my affection for you, speaking the truth in love has this stabilizing effect. It calms fears and it calms anxieties. And that's the elder's duty to speak the truth, to declare it boldly and confidently in love that I love you. I'm not just trying to, you know, knock heads together. I'm, 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 I love you. I love you deeply. And this is one of the reasons that Paul told, uh, uh, Titus to set up elders in Crete. Let me, let me jump over to Titus one. Last week, uh, we saw where, where Paul told Titus, set in order the things that are lacking. And then he gave that long list of qualifications for the elders that are to be uh, 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 ordained in all of these churches. But he says, appoint elders. Why? Well, he goes on later to explain why. Why do we need elders in these cities? For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So the, the synagogues are a, an especially obnoxious influence in Crete. He goes on to say, their mouths must be stopped. 
who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Did Paul just denigrate an entire society? Did, did he just denigrate an entire culture of people right there in the text of the Bible and say it's bad, say that culture is not one to imitate and you can't follow that culture? Well, granted, he's, he's using their own testimony. He says one of, their own, one of their own prophets, one of their own poets said this, so he's just quoting them, but, but he quotes it. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. So here we see the negative side of the elder's duty. Back in Ephesians 4, we hear the positive side. He is to equip, he is to exhort, he is to edify, he is to establish. Those are all the positive parts. Those are the fun parts of the elder's work. But now in Titus 1, we get the negative side. There is rebuking and there is restraining and there is resisting evil. There are these functions as well. So the church must have leaders who are not too nice to stop the mouths of deceivers. We must have elders who put themselves between destroyers and their victims, who counter lies with the truth. And this is an important calling in a world where everybody has their own truth, where everyone just, you know, let me speak my truth, as if there were more than one version, as if there were more than one truth, as if there were more than one objective, where in this world, the facts matter way less than feelings. What you feel about thing validates it. What you feel about something makes it, makes it true. Uh, perhaps things were just as loony in Crete when, when Paul writes this, and to hear Paul describe it, it was at least as loony as the situation that we have. And in these situations, especially, the church must have elders who are not consumed themselves with the anxieties of the age, who are not afraid to hurt someone's feelings if that person is in sin and they need to have their feelings hurt. They need to be brought to repentance with tears. See, the Bible never tells us not to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't know if you know that or not, but that's not in there. It doesn't say don't ever hurt anybody's feelings. Sometimes you need to hurt your children's feelings because they're in sin. They need correcting. Don't ever hesitate to hurt your children's feelings. If they're, you know, running straight out in the street and you say, stop, you got to hurt their feelings to say, come back. But I want to play in the street. No, you don't need to play in the street. You see, often we have to care more about someone's soul and whether it's headed for judgment than we care about their feelings. So Paul doesn't tell Titus, hey, you know, these Cretans are really a handful, but Titus, you need to go easy on them. I mean, okay, and they, they look tough, but they're very, very sensitive guys and they're soft-hearted and it's real easy to offend those Cretans. And I'm sure it was real easy to offend them. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, stop their mouths. They are liars. They are evil beasts. They are lazy gluttons. He says they are abominable. They are disobedient. They are disqualified for every good work. Stop their mouths. Rebuke them sharply. That's the duty of an elder. An elder, a shepherd, must be willing. It must have the stamina, the spine, the rock in his gut to be able to say, be quiet. You're speaking lies. Repent. 
You're sinning. You're in sin. So stopping their mouths, as, as Paul puts it, may mean that you put them out of the church, or maybe you have to oppose them publicly, or maybe you have to remove their platform uh, that they have for speaking and for spreading their nonsense, or you, uh, you thunder out the truth in such a way that, that uh, you, you don't care how they take it and, 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 and you don't care how they receive it, but it's the truth. Because what looks like insensitivity toward the corrupter is actually great compassion for the flock. Permissiveness and patience with the destroyer is cruelty toward the church. You see, we have to be hard on the, on, on the recalcitrant and hard on the sinner um, in, in many times in order to protect the church and the peace and purity of the church. And so, so Paul tells T Titus, you, you don't be afraid to do that. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. There's, there's, there could be a good outcome to this. There could be the possibility that you speak the truth to them. And surprisingly, this happens every once in a while. When you meet error with truth, when you meet weakness with strength and the confidence of the gospel, there's repentance and people lay down their silly ideas and they know that you love me enough to point out my error. So restraining evil and opposing evil and guarding the sanctuary is part of the duty of an elder is part of the duty of a shepherd. Let me go one more place. One more place that we can get some instruction is Peter's first epistle. This is now Peter writing and not Paul. First Peter five, hear, hear what Peter says. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Last week, we looked briefly at the fact that there's a personality type who has no business being in church leadership. Um, there, there's, there's a kind of person who's eager to be followed, who's eager to have the final say. They covet influence. They covet authority. They just want to be able to arrange the church like they arrange every other part of their life, that they just want to um, remove any part that makes them uncomfortable or doesn't add to their self-image or their reputation, and they're disqualified. We can't have arrogant, self-serving, contentious men in church leadership. Um, but because we have this kind of warped perspective and we have this, uh, these bad assumptions about what makes a good leader, we're prone to think that the guy who really, really, really wants the job must somehow be the right guy for the job. I mean, if he's willing to do that and he's willing to stick his neck out, well, then he must be the right guy. And so often he's not. He's actually disqualified because of his attitude about the office. But there's another personality profile and there's another set of concerns that we need to be equally as concerned about and we need to at least bring out and recognize and, and be willing to uh, call to order. Because there, there is another kind of man who may have the gifts for the job and may, may have the calling, but is very fearful and reluctant to do the job. And so there are some aspects of leadership that apply to whether you're a father, whether you're a mother, whether you're managing a classroom, whether you're, whether you're managing a, a, a business, 
um, a, a restaurant, whatever you're, whatever you're doing, a community organization, a ministry, there's some aspects of leadership which we just need to be aware of. Um, there are some aspects of taking responsibility for other people, and especially in the church, especially serving the Lord in this capacity, but, but in any area that sets you up for acute self-doubt. It's very easily in a position of leadership to be petrified by the fear of failure. When you stick your neck out and you take a point of leadership or leadership is thrust upon you or authority is thrust upon you, you're out there in front of everyone. And if you make a decision that's a bad decision, you do it in the spotlight. Everybody sees the bad decision that you made. If you're kind of in the shadows, if you're the second fiddle, you can mess up all the time and maybe nobody ever sees it. But in leadership, you are center stage and it's very difficult to deal with public failure gracefully. And so you may be tempted to shy away from any calling or any authority or any, any form of leadership. And you become apt to distrust your own judgment. You have to often make very difficult decisions in leadership. You have to choose between two bad outcomes. Or people will come to you for counsel. People will come to you advice for advice. They're looking for answers and say, what do I say? What do I know? I mean, I've got all these problems myself, things that I'm trying to figure out. How am I going to help you? Well, let me stop right there and say this is one reason why in the church we have a plurality of elders is because uh, in, in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. We have God's word. We have his Holy Spirit. Um, there's some strength and some confidence that we can have when we're addressing difficult matters together. And yet in, in many leadership positions at some point, you still have to make a decision. So what's it going to be? What are, which way are we going to go? How are we going to advise? How are we going to counsel? And in the middle of that, in the midst of that, you're liable to doubt yourself. You're liable to say, I can't make a decision. I can't, I can't render a judgment. I can't lead. It's impossible for me to offer anything here. You're also... Uh, able and liable to find yourself distrustful of other people. If you get let down a few times, if, if you have people promise to do things that they don't finish, if you're depending on, on somebody else to be there to do a thing and they don't, they don't do it, or they're not respectful of your time, um, over time, you get enough of that in any position of leadership, you become jaded and untrusting. You don't trust people to do what they say. And you think, well, if, if, if someone's going to get done right, I'm just going to have to do it myself. I can't, I can't trust anybody else to do it. And this, this, these, these little, these little, uh, uh, defects start to pile up. This, this, this fear of making a decision, uh, a lack of trust in other people, you, you grow into this odd discomfort with your own authority. Now, every one of us are, are at some point going to be put in a position where we must speak clearly and authoritatively. We, we must speak with the, with the clarity of the gospel. And, and, and even then, when we do that, when we speak in our own authority that God has given us, we can still go away with this nagging remorse, this regret, this wondering if we, if we overstepped, did I alienate somebody with that? Well, well, here's why Peter's instruction is so helpful, particularly to shepherds, elders, 
pastors, and that you need to know that this is what's going on in the head and the heart of a pastor, shepherd, elder, but that also you know that in every area that you're called to lead, that you are prone to these same worries, these same anxieties, and you have to accept that being in a position of leadership means that someone somewhere is upset with you right now, probably. If, if you're in a position of leadership, someone somewhere is disappointed in you. They're probably even angry with you. And you just have to live with that. You have to be okay with that. You can't become defensive. You see, we try to, we try to over-explain and over-justify, and we try to set the record straight every, every time there's a disagreement or incomplete information or bad information floating around. So much of that you have to leave to the Lord and pray that he'll grant people patience and charity with you. But here's the charge. Be confident in the role that God has ordained you to. And that's why Peter says to the shepherds, he says, shepherd the flock. That's a verb, shepherd the flock. Do the duty, do the thing, do the, the, the job you are called to do and don't shrink back and don't die the death of a thousand paper cuts of all these fears and anxieties about not doing the right thing or saying the right thing. Go with humility. Know that you are a steward over God's heritage. You are not lording over God's heritage, but then do what you're called to do. That is the charge. Uh, and, and Peter mentions, you do that, you get a crown of, a crown of glory. Um, this just gives you a small window into the, the duties and the responsibilities and the calling of an elder and the kinds of men that we want in this position in the church. But just as shepherds, elders, overseers have a weight of responsibility toward you, the congregation has a weight of responsibility toward them. Now, at the beginning, I read from Hebrews 13, and I'll repeat that. Verse seven, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. He says, remember, because we're prone to forget. We're prone to forget who they are and what they've done and why God has established them in the church. There's a great example of this back in Numbers chapter 16. The Israelites had a memory problem. They're, they're, they've just refused to go in to take the land that God had given them. And now they've been cursed to wander in the wilderness until they all die. And the next generation can go in and take the land. And there in the wilderness, they begin this little insurrection against Moses and Aaron. It says they complained in their tents. They grumble, they gripe. They have these private conversations where they're just groaning. And then it becomes public. The, 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 the contention becomes public and there's a 250 man posse who comes together and they go before Moses and Aaron and they say, who do you think you are? We're all holy here. Who are you? Why do you exalt yourself over us as rulers? Who do you think you are to exalt yourself over us? And then Moses in grief falls flat on his face and when he gets up, you know, he's repenting and praying to God, Lord, I don't know, what, with these people, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And then he gets up and he says, okay, tomorrow I want you to bring up your censer, bring up, bring up that container for your incense, put fire and incense in your censer, and we'll see who the Lord has chosen. If you want a little test, we'll, we'll test. If you want proof, we'll, we'll see proof. And then, and then they say something amazing. They, they accuse Moses, they say, you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to die out here in the wilderness. 
And if I'm Moses, I think, wait a minute, what did you just say? The land of Egypt was the land flowing with milk and honey. You remember when you were slaves, when you, when you were in bondage, that was the land flowing with milk and honey. And by the way, I brought you up to the border of the land flowing with milk and honey and you didn't want to go in. How is that my fault? What, what have I done here? You didn't want to take the land. You want to go back to bondage. You want to go back to slavery. That's the upside down kind of thinking that we take part in when we forget. We paint the past so rosy and we paint the present so impossibly unbearable. So they've forgotten what Egypt was like. They had covered over their own irresponsibility in taking the land of promise ahead of them. And they'd forgotten everything that Moses had done for them, everything Moses had done to get them there. And you remember how they rebelled at the foot of Mount Sinai, how they made the golden calf and worshiped it? It was Moses. When God was ready to destroy them, it was Moses who told God, forgive them, take me, destroy me, blot me out of your book, let me take their punishment. So they have the gall to say to Moses, you keep acting like a prince over us. So if that's the accusation, fine. Moses is exactly the kind of prince who dies for his people. That's the kind of prince he is. This is almost too ridiculous to believe, but they said it. They did it and they were rewarded for their forgetfulness because the earth splits open and consumes some of them and then uh, the fire breaks out from the altar and burns up the rest of them. Um, Forgetting what God has said and forgetting what he has done and forgetting the purpose for which he has established his authority in his church, forgetting these things is the height of foolishness and the end of that path is destruction. So Hebrews 13 says, remember, don't forget, remember those who rule over you. Don't fail to appreciate who they are and what they've done for you. And in verse 17, he continues, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. In this one verse, you have almost everything you need to know about church government. You have, uh, you have to know who your elders are if you're to submit to them and the elders have to know who you are if they're to give an account for you. I don't know how you follow Hebrews 13, 17 without some regularly constituted church membership, some kind of formalized church membership. Uh, Because he says there, the elders need to know who you are so that they can give an account. And you have to know who your elders are so that you can follow them. And so that's why we do church membership, so that we know who we're uh, accountable to. And I know that I'm going to stand before the Lord Jesus one day, and I'm going to have to give an account for every one of you. I'm going to have to say, I, Lord Jesus, I, I, I had responsibility for this family and for this family and for these little people and for these, these other people. I don't want to be able to be, look him in the eye and say, I did, I was faithful. I poured myself out. I failed where I failed. I confessed my sin, but I poured myself out for your people and I gave myself for your people because I, I take this seriously. Um, and I know all of our elders take this deeply, deeply seriously in such a way that uh, we want the rest of that verse to be a reality as well. So, so they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. I have served in churches in other parts of the galaxy, far, far away that you don't know who they are and you don't know any of the people, but I've served in churches with beleaguered weary elders. 
I've served with men who have absolutely been worn out dealing with contentious, sinful, bad attitude, having problematic, just a small group of unrepentant people can inevitably take away all of the joy and the ability to serve the rest of the congregation. Everybody suffers. All the ministry of the church is diminished. It's, it's demoralizing and it saps the joy of the shepherds, of the elders. It, it obstructs the progress of the church when the elders are consumed with just one or two little, little problems that won't, won't get resolved. It's unprofitable for you when your elders serve with grief and not joy. And so I want to be a delight. I want to be a joy. Whenever I'm in a position of submission to somebody else, whether it's in the presbytery, whether it's on a committee, whether it's in a classroom, whether I'm doing some study, I want to be a joy. I don't want to be a problem. I don't want to be a handful. I don't want to start trouble. I don't want to be a fountain of discontent. I want to be a joy to uh, to, to help and to serve. And so our desire in thinking about these things and our desire in, in studying this is so that we can have a functioning, healthy church government in order for us to be a place of stability and order and rest. I want the church to be a refuge from the chaos of poorly functioning government. We are surrounded by poorly functioning government. But the church is in a position to be an example, to be a pattern for families and societies to follow. Judgment begins at the house of God. We will never sort out the world's problems if we cannot first sort out our own. Why would the Lord give us dominion over anything out there if we haven't brought to order and exercised order what we have in here? So then pray that God would raise up and continue to raise up faithful leaders be a leader in your position, wherever God has planted you, whatever opportunities God has given you, be a leader, prepare yourself for more leadership, get your house in order, apply yourself to the scriptures, be faithful to the work of ministry, of discipleship, of mercy ministry, of evangelism, of fellowship, of worship, apply yourself, be faithful to the work of ministry, accept the opportunities that arise and support and honor the leaders that God has already appointed in, in his church. Those who he set in our midst, pray for them, encourage them. You have a role to play in the success and the glory and the edification and the building up of the church and the body of Christ. You have a, a significant role to play. Do it with joy. Do it, do it looking for the, the, the establishment of the kingdom in our time, in, in our society, and do it by mutual submission mutual compassion, love, and deep affection for each other and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to indeed establish us in these things. Help us to hear these things. Help all of us in various roles of leadership and authority to do the work you have called us to do. Not shirk, not draw back, but to do it boldly and confidently in the grace that you have given us. So fill us with your spirit and strengthen your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.